know. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If you want to turn back to the hymn, just a few comments. Just, you know, there's information in here at the bottom. It says the text is originally, it's German, 
Uh, stanza one was from the 13th century. Uh, and then Luther added the last three stanzas. As you notice, there's stanzas two through four and all. You can see that listed at the bottom there. And so this text uh, actually goes back further uh, than uh, the 12th century, uh, 13th century, in Latin, the uh, veni spiritus, the spirit coming, homo spirit. But in the t- uh, 1200s, a preacher made like a poem out of this, and it, be- it stuck, and people liked it, and so they, they used it in the church. And so I'll just read this. Um, little, this is from a Luther- handbook of the Lutheran hymnal, I don't have the one for LSB, so I don't know if they even have this. But this, uh, this stanza, quoted in a sermon by the Franciscan brother and famous medieval preacher Berthold of Regensburg, he died in 1272, gave the impetus for this hymn. The stanza, no doubt, was suggested by the sequence, Veni Sanctus Spiritus. According, oh, this is... No idea. Pastor Bender's not here, so he won't get any ideas. Okay, just according to Cook, it was sung by the people in the Pentecost service during the ceremony in which a wooden dove was lowered by a cord from the ceiling or the roof of the chancel, or a living dove was then let free. So just don't. He's on. He might listen to this later and get some ideas. But just in case. But I thought you know. These novelties are nothing new in the church. You know, trying to get the, let's do something a little bit extra to, to get the people uh, involved. A, a wooden dove, I mean, that's, you know, right up. I mean, for 12th century, I'm sure that was probably top-notch technology to do that. Okay, Martin Luther recognized the value of the stanza, calling it, I don't even know, something in German, and added three stanzas of his own, invoking the Holy Spirit as true light, sacred love, and highest comfort. His version first appeared in the uh, John Walter's Geistlich Gesang Buchlein, Wittenberg, 1524. The hymn is generally appointed for Whitsuntide Pentecost, but has also been used for Holy Communion, for the ordination of ministers, as a hymn before the sermon, and for the beginning of worship. Um, so just to take a look. So you have the first stage, it's just a general invocation of the Spirit. And yet look, and then you go to stanza two we have here. Oh, sweetest love. He is the spirit of love. He is the one uh, that brings the love of Christ to us. Uh, That's his work. Then the second one is he's this transcendent comfort, or the comfort of the paraclete. Uh, And it says, in our every need. And so what needs are excluded? Larry? What needs are excluded in this statement? He's our comfort in every need. None. From the littlest to the biggest. Every need. He's our comfort. And uh, we all go through our difficult times, health, family, job. We all need comfort. And even the children have their, you know, they're despairing of, you know, their comfort for them is the Holy Spirit. And that's what that verse here. And then, shine in our hearts, O Spirit, precious light. Uh, what is, in the catechism, what do we say? The Holy Spirit has called me 
by the gospel enlightened me. He brings light. And what is the light that he brings to us? The gospel? Jesus is the light of the world. And so he he is the light because he brings us the light into our lives. He illumines us. And so a very beautiful uh, hymn in the TLH, the title is, We Now Implore God the Holy Ghost. So, you know, you old people, you might remember that. Other two, other name, I, I, you know, <laughs> I wasn't pointing at John for any reason, I mean, any of us. But I was having trouble looking it up until I did the check the tune and, and all. Like, oh, I changed the title of it. So any questions on this hymn or that? So sing it and remember uh, the, the great gift, you know, of the Holy Spirit that God has given us to bring love, comfort, and light into our lives. Okay. Then uh, the verse of the week. I asked Mark with his fine penmanship. I think he should get an A for penmanship. Um, and uh, how nicely written he has up there from uh, our Old Testament. We'll speak it together. Abraham believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for his righteousness. Or for, to him for righteousness. Mark, you're getting a mistake. I could I had to chuck that off. Not him for, but it is righteousness. But there's truth. You are not theologically wrong, but just the text. But thank you. So, um, note, uh, it wasn't until a few chapters later that the Lord changes uh, Abraham, Abram's name to Abraham. So at this point, he was uh, still Abram. And uh, so we remember that. Uh, it says he believed. What is it to believe? What is belief? Faith, that sure confidence and trust in the heart. And so his whole being was in the Lord or toward the Lord. Um, and the word um, aman was behind this idea has the idea of being established, being nourished, standing firm. Those are the ideas behind the Hebrew of believe, that it's a standing firm. Um, And the first three times that verb is used for belief are here in Genesis uh, 15, uh, where it's uh, used about um, that. Then the second time is in Genesis 42, when Joseph challenges his brothers, and in Genesis 45, where Jacob does not believe that Joseph is alive. So three times in, in Genesis, this verb is used. Here's the first one. Then when Joseph challenges his brothers, uh, I don't believe you. You're not telling the truth about Benjamin. You know, and uh, I'm not trusting. And, and so this confidence or trust uh, that was there. So this being in a sure foundation is what uh, he had. So his foundation Everything from which he's built is in the Lord. And then the next phrase here, in the Lord, and uh, it could also be translated toward the Lord. That, that the world distracts us, but our attention, our faith, our love, our trust are from, is toward him, that is in him. Because uh, as what does faith do? It moves us from this world and the things of this world to God. And so there's kind of a movement indicated in the original language that we're in the Lord. Uh, 
because there's no faith without its object. You have to have an object. People say, oh, my faith is really strong. What faith? I mean, some people have faith in the Packers or the Bears. I don't have faith in the Vikings. Don't worry about that. But, <laughs> but whatever their team or their company or the world or their political party, you have to have a, a, whatever your belief or confidence is, it's an, in toward an object. And the same thing here. Faith, that confidence is always towards something. And in this verse, we're told it is in or toward the Lord. Uh, and here the Lord um, had been promising Abram a couple times before that he would build him a house um, and establish a greater seed for Abram. And then we go on, he accounted it to him. And I thought the, the Hebrew word behind this, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord thought of Abram as righteous or, you know, and, and the idea behind it seems to be taking something that is not and declaring it to be so. So Abraham isn't righteous. We know that because what he did beforehand, he pawned off his sister, his wife as his sister, you know, and all those things. Um, and so, but he accounted to him. And behind the Greek word that translates this is a, has to do with a forensic idea that is a declaration. You're not righteous, but I'm declaring you to be righteous. And I'm, I, the example, you know, the, uh, why is the man's wife beautiful? Because he says she's beautiful. And I know how often uh, the wife will say, oh, don't say that. Yeah, yes, you're beautiful. And that declaration of the husband that his wife is beautiful and uh, so that she may not think it's so, but it is so. And this, that's the kind of the concept behind this, being accounted or declared righteous. Uh, and God, God sets forth the reality. The reality is he's righteous. But look at his life. He doubted, he stumbled, and yet the Lord considered him righteous. And Abraham had done nothing, and yet this was an act of total grace. It was undeserved. Did Abram deserve to be declared righteous? No. He didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve that mercy, yet it was given. And so it's not how I feel. It's not how I feel. Because you know what? Feelings deceive us. Feelings mislead us. It's not what the world thinks of us. Because the world thinks a man can be a woman. The world's kind of screwed up. Well, not kind of, big time screwed up. And so it's not what people feel. It's not what the world says. It's what God says. And what God thinks and what he declares. And he says, Abram's righteous in the same way he declares you righteous by the word that he speaks. And that's why I, I like the, the, when the, they translate it in the Greek, they used a word that has the concept of word in it to declaration. And the other thing I just tried, and I'm, I'm not a great Hebrew scholar, but what I could not find was the word it in the Hebrew text. I could not look, I looked through the word, tried to get somebody, you know, to you know, break down the words, 
Uh, so it doesn't seem like it's explicitly, you know, you might have to correct me, headmaster, pastor, you know, what well, the... He, Right. Is that what you want me to say? Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, that's, what, that's why it's there uh, in, in the text. But I think um, uh, I'm going to have a little comment later why I think it might be a w- different way of looking at it without using it. But we'll go here uh, to him. He declared, counted it to him. And here that, again, is that movement toward that something not, it's given to him. It's a... Um, it's a in this case, toward Abraham, that he was declared righteous. Um, in a way, we can say Christ's righteousness is nothing unless it has somewhere to be. So Christ is righteous. What does that mean? Except it's given to Joseph and Lydia and all of you. It has to have an, just as our faith has to have an object. So Christ's righteousness has an object, and it's you. That righteousness is given to you. And so there's a given gift and the St. Paul says it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so um, this righteousness that we have, it's towards, it has, it's given to us. And then finally the word righteousness or for righteousness. Um, Zedek, Melchizedek, you heard Zedekiah, uh, that like the righteousness is the work of the Lord, as the, Jeremiah declares. The Lord has revealed our righteousness. Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord. And I, I took, taught a class on Bible as literature, and I really found there's wonderful things that are revealed in Scripture by its use of parallelisms and imagery. And this is one of those issues of parallelism in Jeremiah 51.10. The Lord has revealed our righteousness... And it says, come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord. So you have this parallel. So what is the work of the Lord? To reveal our righteousness. That's the connection that's made by Jeremiah uh, in this. So to bring that to us, that's what the Lord wants to do. He wants to declare us righteous uh, for Christ's sake. Um, the righteousness of Abram is the same as your righteousness. There's no difference. It's a righteousness in Christ um, and that. And what is our righteousness? It is the Lord is our righteousness. Now, what I wanted to comment here is that there could be a different way of translating this. And I thought I wrote it down so I'd make sure I get it. Uh, he accounted or he declared uh, him righteous. That's just that he declared him righteous, that he... Rather than just he accounted it to him, he declared it righteous. And uh, rather than even the it, but declared uh, him righteous. And it, but if that's the issue with the translation. You know, that how uh, the words are there and what they might mean or not mean uh, and how they're translated in context. So any questions on this text? We're going to get back to it when we go to the... A uh, full verse there. Any questions on Genesis 15, 6? Okay. Well, let's speak the text together. Abraham believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Okay. Um, we'll move on uh, to uh, just uh, the Psalm 13 for the week. Make sure you note that. 
And as the readings noted, uh, we're continuing in Matthew's Gospel for the readings for the week. Uh, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount and following. And then the Catechism for the week uh, on the Sacrament of Baptism. And let's speak that together. How can water do such great things? Certainly not just water, but the Word of God in and with the water does these things, along with the faith which trusts this Word of God in the water. For without God's Word, the water is plain water and no baptism, but with the Word of God, it is a baptism that is a life-giving water rich in grace and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Okay. We will turn now to Genesis chapter 15. Take a look there. Beginning at verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar Damascus. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring, indeed no one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will, be, who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted to him for righteousness. Okay, looking at this, I just, it's just kind of weird conversation, I think. So I'm going to ask Joe, I'm going to be Abraham, and Joe, I want you to read that statement from the Lord in verse 1, just the quote, and read it to me. And I'm, going to, I'm going to paraphrase Abraham's response. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. I don't have any kids. Does this make absolutely, I'm I, I, I trying to find the word I asked Susan, non sequitur? It's just like, what? Reward? And this is, it's like, when you hear, don't you think it's weird? You talk, I, you know, I'll be your great reward. I don't have kids. That's his basic, that's his response. You know, so I was all through this, I, you know, and, and I, was try, I was trying to think about it. why? Why would, and so to me, the key word happens to be is in the word reward. So we're going to come back to just a moment. It says, after these things. So you have to put that in context. So this statement of reward, you have to go back after these things. What things had happened? Abram was called out of Mesopotamia. He went to Egypt. 
He was given the promise of Canaan. Lot was held captive. And, they, um, and uh, then uh, he meets Melchizedek. All these things had happened. Uh, and so this, this is what the uh, context of this. And then the Lord came to him and said, do not be afraid. And I think this goes back to Pastor Bender's mentioned this often. This, that be not afraid is peace or forgiveness, a word of absolution, that you know, we're, there's no animosity. But don't, don't be afraid. There's peace between us. And Abram, I am your shield. And the shield is picked up in the Psalms quite often about God being our shield and our defense, our fortress, uh, in many places throughout the Psalms. Your exceedingly great reward. And I, I thought, what is it with this word reward? How can he, God say reward and Abraham immediately go to children? These child. Well, the word here, uh, sakar, uh, usually is translated as reward, pay, wages, or hire. And, but it's a reward based on a promise. Not simply, you know, that something is earned, but there's a promise that's given, and you are given this. Uh, so there, it, it's, it's not, you know, we have this idea of uh, works righteous. That's not, he's not, it's not a gift based on what you do. It's a gift on the promise. It's used 28 times in the Old Testament. But I would like to look at two more times where this word is used. And, to, and I think we might get a picture of why Abraham responds. Genesis 30, verse 18. Genesis 30. Verse 18. Okay. This Leah says, God has given me my wages or my reward because I have given my maid to my husband. Well, I don't know if that's a reward. Uh, she, so she called his name Issachar. The reward is the birth of a child. That's what her re- wages were, her reward. Well, interesting. Then let's go to Psalm 127, 3. Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Interesting. I, I, when I saw, I, I, I go, God's word answers its own questions. And this explains partly, I think, why having children was so important in the Old Testament line. That, that, um, and, uh, all that has found its fulfillment in Christ, the, the pure born, uh, pretty one born of the virgin. But here, so when uh, the Lord says, I am your, your exceedingly great reward, I am your life, I am everything you matter, the children, you know, I am the one that gives children. Um, and so it's not about money or possessions because. He already had all that stuff. He was rich. Um, 
And what had the Lord talked to Abram about in their previous encounters? This, and then they go, okay, so here's Abram talking to the Lord. What had they talked about in Genesis 12 when they first, the Lord first met him? What did the Lord promise Abram? Many children, many descendants. Your seed will be many. Bless. Then he meets him again uh, and speaks to him and says, speaks of your descendants will be many. You know? Okay. Then again, they meet and the promise says, your descendants will be, will be un- innumerable. You know? And so the, con- the context of their conversations up to this point have been about children about his seed, or that one seed of uh, Eve, who would, seed of the woman, who would come forth later. And so when Abram hears this, I am your exceedingly, the reward that uh, Abraham has in his context is this uh, child, it's his descendants. And he goes, but I don't have any. I don't have children. And so, um, so he says, Lord, what will you give me? Okay, so, and uh, the Lord uh, hears his word, his question, and his uh, plea. And uh, I walk childless, Abram says. I, I go about my day. Um, You've given me no offspring. And this, um, verse 3 this is one of my pet peeves. It's an earworm, I think I told Pastor. The word here for offspring is seed. It's the same word that's used for, uh, you know, God promised the seed of the woman. And, I be, and if the, then the King James does word, use the word seed. Um, and, and I think they try to make a distinction, the seed of the promise versus any seed, like descendant. Uh, but the... Um, your uh, heir, your seed, you've given me no seed, you've given me no uh, descendants, uh, he speaks here, uh, and he recognizes the need of this God giving it to him uh, at this time. And then God, again, takes him out, outside to look at the heaven, and more, the, more than being numbered, and uh, the, you now know that, I mean, we know that the speed of light's decreasing, and I, I truly believe there are more stars out there than we can see now. But Abraham saw all those stars because it was closer to uh, uh, creation uh, since the fall. And, and the lights are uh, slowing down. But at the same time, when we, we do see, they talk about new, new stars and new lights in the heavens. I, don't, I just think it's the light that's taking a little bit longer. They were there before. It's just taking a little bit longer now to get here. So they're there and all. The lights are there. How many of you have gone to some uh, uh, place where there's no lights? And you look up into the heavens, and then hopefully clear night. <laughs> what are the, what, could you number the stars? No. And, and uh, even in the Big Dipper, at one of the bends, there's actually two stars. And they said they would, they would ask people in the ancient world, how many stars do you see there? And if they said two, they knew they had good eyesight. <laughs> <laughs> if they can only see one, uh, they, they, their eyes weren't that good. But, I mean, so there's so many stars. And this is the, so shall your descendants be. 
they will be innumerable. And then, so now here, Abraham believed the Lord. He trusted what the Lord had to say, and it was, he was declared righteous. He was reckoned to be righteous before the Lord. Uh, any questions on this text? Um, you know, the thing is, he's righteous, and what does he do in the next chapter? Just let's take a look. What does he do in the next chapter? Yeah, yeah, God, you just, yeah, you need a little help, you know? And so he, uh, Sarah gives Hagar to, uh, is this kind of, oh, well, you know, with the righteousness we have, yes, even the righteous need God's word of forgiveness, life, and salvation. Okay, any questions or comments, observations? Oh, we have a question. Mark, he gets to do my job. And, he, he doesn't move as fast as I do. <laughs> do you have an estimate on how long from when Abraham first received the promise of offspring until he actually had offspring? How many years do you think he waited? 70, 25, wasn't it? He was called 75. He was 75 when he was called out of Mesopotamia. And so he took matters into his own hands when he was about 85, 86 with Ishmael, you know, and because Ishmael was about 13. I think when so he still had faith through all that time. He just had yeah, to wait. Yeah, but he struggled. I mean, this is uh, uh, we we ha we're in a world today where you uh, we have churches that believe that you'll never show any sign of weakness in your faith, that you'll never struggle, and if you ever struggle, you're not really a believer. And uh, the Lord is faithful, and we saw that we see that David, Abraham, the same way, Abraham stumbled along the way, and yet the Lord remained faithful to him in the midst of it all. Uh, uh, and so that's, you know, the, so for 25 years he waited. Uh, and that's a long time. I mean, then the thing is he lived, was it 170? How? I mean, he lived after that. After, I mean, he had six kids after Sarah died with a Keturah. I mean, it was, you talk, he had more kids. Uh, I can't imagine a hundred-year-old guy, you know, having little kids running around the house, you know. Um, but uh, the Lord uh, gave him that. Uh, but they weren't not line sign of the promise. They were not in the line of the promise. Any other questions about this text or Abram? Okay, let's move to First John, chapter four. Touch on this one, and then I just would also touch on the gospel. Verse 16 of chapter 4. And we have known and believed the Lord, the love that the Lord has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And the word here abides um, it has to do with remaining in, re whoever remains in. And so whoever remains in God's love remains in God. You know, that, that living in, existing in, as a, so the word abide would be used. You're living in this uh, love that you uh, have from him. And so here we have an established relationship. This is, John is talking, you have this relationship with God. He abides in you and you in him. Now, we know where that relationship was established. At the font. 
where you were born again of water and the Spirit, you were born in Christ. And so we have uh, that relationship that John is talking about. He also talked about beloved children and things of that nature. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. And I do have a problem with the translation perfected. It's, it's correct, but in our ears, it has a different meaning. You know, I have to be perfect. And it's, the word is completed or finished or brought to its fullness. Um, you hear like, uh, to tell us it is finished, Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. We could say it is perfected. And you could have translated it that way, but it's finished or completed. And so if you look at this and say love has been completed or brought to its fullness among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we. So how is Christ? He is whole, undefiled, righteous, and that's who we are in the day of judgment. So when we stand before the throne of God in the day of judgment, he's not going to look at our sin our corruption, he's going to look at Jesus and see this is who you are. You are righteous in Christ. And then he goes on, there is no fear in love and perfect or complete love. The fullness of love casts out fear because fear involves torment. And I was trying to, you know, what's kind of, it's not in every case, but if you think of fear as equaling unbelief and love as true faith, just kind of, if you look at that in this sentence, it kind of, there is no unbelief in, in belief. That is there in Jesus' love. There's no unbelief in Jesus. You know, there is Jesus, there's life in him. And the completion of faith, the fullness of faith, casts out unbelief. So those who are in Christ, the fear is removed because we are in Christ and the unbelief that separation, because unbelief is being separated from God. Um, and here again, and, but he who fears has not been made perfect, and this has not been completed or fulfilled in love. And in verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. The source of all love is God. He is the giver. He gives life. He gives new life. He gave his son he gives forgiveness. He gives righteousness. All these things. He is the one. He is the source of all love from him. And then he says here, if I love God and hate my brother, uh, and it's, if there's an absence of love, if there's no love for our brother, how can we really love our, our God? In the sense of that love is forgiving toward them. If we cannot forgive our neighbor, how can we believe that we are forgiven by God uh, as well. And just a touching on any questions on this text that you had. And then we'll just jump, jump over to Luke here real quick. Luke chapter six, uh, 16. I won't read the whole text, just kind of capture some points. Why did, why was Lazarus laid at the rich man's gate? 
And I think that we got to understand is what you go into the city, you go in down. How many have been downtown Milwaukee? What's one of the biggest things you see out there? Panhandlers? I see panhandlers. I, I drive home from work at the corner of Mill and 76 in good weather, of course, not bad weather, good weather. There's always somebody standing in the median on all, trying, hey, you know, I got a bottle of water, give me five bucks for, I mean, they, they're just, you know, all this stuff. But they're, they're, but why are these people there? Why aren't those people asking for money for water in Sussex at Maine and Maple? Why are they in the city there? Why are they downtown Milwaukee, not in downtown Sussex? Why? There's a simple reason. Well, because there's more people, but there are people that will give you something. Here, there's not going to be people, and they're probably not going to get anything. Beggars know where people are who give money, and they go there. You, they know who the generous ones are. When I, I was a young pastor many moons ago, I had um, this gentleman come into my study. I'm thinking it must have been after Pastor Weeding went to Shorewood. So probably, uh, and he sat down there and was asking for money. And I, you know, I, I didn't have any. I mean, I'm, I'm, what's going on here? And, uh, but I did know that the Sheriff's Department had an aid program that they, they, met, they did for the uh, community, like the poor. You know, if you want a $20 coupon to go get groceries and things like that. $5 for, you know, low hotel and things of that nature. And, and, I, uh, and I, I helped given that. Well, a few months later, someone else comes. And you find out, oh, they found out that you will give them something. Therefore, they will keep coming. So that the reason Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate was because the rich man was known to give things. He did give crumbs. He did, you know, give. So I think, to, and he was, he was wealthy, he was a leader. So I think this, in a worldly sense, this rich man was very well respected uh, and the like, and Lazarus was there because that's where, you know, rich people had the things to give, and, and he gave. Uh, but he was desiring to fed, but did not get what was he needed, uh, and he uh, dies. Uh, but one of the things in here that I always find, a couple things here. Abraham says to the rich man, you received your good things. What you consider good, you received. And what you consider bad, I'm paraphrasing, Lazarus received. And so we have that, you know, that, that uh, exchange, you know, that the, man was, the rich man was living for this world. Everything in this world meant, mattered to him, not what uh, the Lord gave, true faith. And then when the rich man is in uh, hell, I, I have Pastor Bender point, he just kind of bosses Abraham. Hey, you know, I mean, you got to send my brother, you know, send somebody to my brothers to, like, you're in hell. What are you talking about telling God and Abraham what to do? But he says, uh, that no father, if you if he if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. I just what happened in John eleven? Someone came from the dead, and what happened? How did the people react? Who who, who was resurrected in John eleven? Lazarus. Lazarus, and you know what the people wanted to do with Lazarus? They want to kill him. They didn't want to believe in Jesus. 
And so this statement here says, oh, yeah, someone. And you, but you hear that in the world today. If I just saw a sign, I would believe. Don't, have you ever heard that? Oh, I, I need some sign from God, and I'll believe. It's not true. If they, they, they've seen signs. I mean, there's signs all over the place of God's mercy and love in this world. They've just chosen not to believe it. And so if they saw some miraculous thing, they would still not believe it. And so that we have here that, uh, that we, we know that uh, the rich man uh, did not trust in Christ just as the poor man, all he had was Christ. I just want to touch real quickly. We're at the end of time. Any questions on the text uh, that we've covered or anything else that came up that you might need to... If I don't know... I will ask the boss when he gets back. So, yes, Paul. I don't know if I, do I want to give you a microphone? <laughs> Is it rational behavior uh, for the Jews to want to kill Lazarus? Uh, what did they accomplish? I mean, uh, Lazarus's uh, being alive was seen by many others. Uh, if they kill him, are they going to go after the rest? I just don't see rational well, behavior here. Well, it is not rational. I mean, it's not just, the thing is, I would not limit it to the Jews. This irrational behavior is in the world, all over. They, they, um, many people, did, I mean, look at the efforts people have to go to deny creation. It's there. And the evidence is there, but they choose to ignore that evidence. Yeah. In Exodus... All the Israelites saw all the miracles. Yep, that's excellent. Yeah, thank and you. they still rejected God. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this is when that is when there's opposition to the mercy. What they are objecting to is God's mercy, God's love, and the world hates that because the world wants to earn it. And God freely gives that love to us in Christ Jesus. Any other questions or comments? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.